Okay. All right, this morning I'm going to read from Job uh, chapter 29. And we're just going to touch on, uh, just touch on, because it's the counterpart for, for the Old Covenant, which is Job 29, and the New Covenant explaining what Job is going through and sometimes why we groan. And that's in Romans, the seventh chapter. So here is Job, Job 29. He's coming to the end. He doesn't realize it yet, but he's coming to the end of his trial. His trial had to do with the fact that in his own thoughts and in his own reasonings, what he was doing is revealed, and I'll read it here, is revealed in Job 32. And then we'll get back to verse 29. We'll see. But in Job uh, 32, and here's the reason why sometimes, uh, sometimes that we, we groan and we mix what we're going to talk about, the two different groanings, but why we mix the two ways that we can groan as believers in Christ. So Job 32, verse 1. This is, this is why Job was all his reasonings in Job 29 all were centered on himself and not Christ. So, Job 32, verse 1, it says, So these three men ceased to answer Job. Number one, they didn't have the right answer because they were approaching uh, the reasons for, for Job's sin based upon their own legalistic right, self-righteousness and then it says, because he, Job, was righteous in his own eyes. See? He was righteous in his own eyes. Then, in verse 2, was kindled the wrath of Elihu. And again, Elihu here is the type of Christ in, in what God was doing through him. The wrath of Elihu, the son of Barakel, of the Buzite, of the kindred of Ram, Against Job was his wrath kindled. Why? Because he justified himself rather than God. In other words, what it says in the Hebrew is his whole justification had to do with his soul, which is his only self-conscious capacity. And in that, all he was doing was justifying himself based upon his own self-righteousness. And in that way, Blaming God. So we see in Job 29, look at what it says, Job 29, and he's coming to the end. He's getting towards the end to get into chapter uh, 42, and you can read that. Uh, the summation of what God was doing and, and the way he even instigated the whole trial for Job, and it was his love that was for Job that instigated the whole trial because even when you read in Job the first chapter was it was God himself that instigated and brought about the whole thing and you can if you read Job the first chapter you will see it you will see even in Job the first chapter and the second chapter how he uses Satan even for the good of those that are his own but in Job 29 verse 1 it says moreover Job continued. He added, <laughs> he added his parable and said, oh, and I want you to see how many times it says, I 
and me here. Oh, that I were in the months past as in the days when God preserved me. I, me. When my candle, his human spirit, shined upon my head, (laughs) and when by his, God's light, I walked through darkness. I was in the days of my youth when the secret of God was upon my tabernacle, his, his body. When the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were about me, when I washed my steps with butter, and the rock poured me out rivers of oil. Me there is with me, but it's still me. (laughs) Out rivers of oil. When I went out to the gate through the city, when I prepared my seat in the street, the young man saw me, <laughs> me, and hid themselves. And the aged arose and stood up in recognition of him. The princes refrained from talking and laid their hand on their mouth. The nobles, all those in certain positions and high positions, held their peace and their tongues cleaved to the roof of their mouth. They weren't saying anything. And when the ear heard me, then it blessed me. And when the eye saw me, it gave witness to me, because I delivered the poor that cried, and the fatherless in him that had none to help him. The blessing of him that was ready to perish came upon me, (laughs) and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me, my judgment was as a robe and a diadem. I was eyes to the blind, and feet was I to the lame. Now, when it says diadem in the 14th verse, when it talks about crowns, again, when we get into the crowns, and especially in Revelations, every crown that you and I have is, in the Greek, it's Stephanos. It's a crown. It's a laurel. The only one that ever wears a diadem of pure gold is Jesus Christ. But he's attributing that to himself. Very interesting. Verse 16, I was a father to the poor, and the cause which I knew not, (laughs) I searched out. (laughs) Wow. Then I broke the jaws of the wicked and plucked and cast the spoil out of his teeth. Then I said, I will die in my nest, and I will multiply my days as the sand. My root was spread out, opened and spread out by the waters, and the dew lay all night upon my branch. My glory was fresh in me, and my bow was renewed, changed and renewed, in my hand, and unto me men gave ear, notice, and waited and kept silence at my counsel. After my words, they spoke not again, and my speech dropped upon them. And they waited for me as for the rain, and they opened their mouth wide as for the latter rain. I laughed on them. They believed it not, 
and the light of my countenance they cast not down. I chose out their way and sat chief and dwelt as a king in the army as one that comforts mourners. So far, <laughs> whose thought is Job? It's himself. <laughs> That's his thought. He groaned intensely in the midst of his trial, the wrong kind of groaning because it was all based upon himself. That's why even when we get to Romans, the seventh chapter, we see again all those times where it says, all those times. We see in Romans, the seventh chapter, in verse seven, it says, what will we say? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, no, I, notice that, I had not known sin, but by the law, for I had not known lust, except the law had said, you will not covet. But sin, and the covet, again, covetousness, is Exodus 20 and verse 13, but sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once. But then the commandment came, sin revived, came back right back up again, and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be death unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, just, and good, was then that which is good made death unto me. God forbid, but sin. Nature here now. Sin. And sin here speaks of nature. That it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good. That sin, by the commandment, might become exceeding sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold unto sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. Do you ever feel that way? That's all reasonings of the flesh. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but that nature, that sin nature, and for the Christian, that, that expresses itself in the flesh, which God considers to be dead, based upon Romans 6, 1 through 6, and based upon the reality of the two in Romans 8 and verse 9. So we say, it says, now then I, it is no more I that do it, but that sin that's in the flesh that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my body, dwells no good thing, for to will is present with me. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. That's what, that's what Job never found. He didn't find, he never found in, in what his own reasoning was, how to perform it. For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. In other words, he's declaring all these truths, but is it his experience yet? It's not. It's not. This is the position of a believer as they're 
is they're in the two part of Romans 1 and verse 17. They go from faith, mountaintop, to faith. And so he said, I find then, not, not now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but that nature that dwells in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, wanting to, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, who I truly am in Christ. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. What is the whole point that he got to, this believer? O wretched man that I am. Because in our thoughts about our flesh, apart from Christ, we groan, and what do we come up with? What is the result of our groaning and our own reasoning that needs to be cast down because the weapons of our warfare in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4 are not carnal. But they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and that's the Greek word for reasonings. And every high thing, where it comes from. Where does all the reasonings of the flesh come from? It's from the atmosphere, from Satan and his demonic army. So, a wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Was that already accomplished? Has that already been accomplished in us? Yes. This is why it's so necessary when we look and what God was trying to do with Job, bringing him to the place where finally he would submit his will to have a proper experience. Because, again... For I know in Romans 7, 18, I know in me that is in my body here dwells what? There's no good thing. What good is our even our human bodies without submitting our wills to God? What, what do we use them for? The enemy uses them, our own bodies, as weapons against God and against ourselves. He'll use the body with all of its lust patterns. And remember what lust is insatiable will never be satisfied. We can never find satisfaction outside of who Christ has made us to be in himself and who we are in him. There'll never be any satisfaction because I know that in me dwells no good thing. For to will is present with me. I have a desire to do it, but how to perform that which is good I find not. Because who's the only one that ever performed good based upon Matthew 19? Verses 16, 17, and 18, and Luke 19, verses 17, 18, and 19. Who's the only one that does good? God. God himself, his very nature, that part of, of who he is in Exodus 34 and verse 6. Goodness is in him and him only. There's no performance. That's why it says, even in Job 23 and verse 14, he performs the thing that he requires. So if God requires it, and it's only him, and God has accomplished it through his Son for us as believers by the power of the Holy Spirit, then what must we do to experience it? We have to submit our wills. We have to, on a continual basis. Because we see again, then, in verse 23, 
But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. As long as I think outside of Christ with this evil reasoning, what do I come up with in my experience? Ah, O wretched man that I am. Am I wretched in Christ? Does God see me as wretched? This is what Paul was saying. This is what he was, and this is what the word, and this is why we do come to hear all of us together so that God can separate in Hebrews 4 verse 12 the soul from the spirit, self-conscious reasoning and thinking and being wretched from truly who we are in Christ in our position, but there has to be a separation with the will being submitted before we can actually experience the reality of how God sees us in a proper image. And this is what Paul was saying in Galatians 4 and verse 19. My little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. Are we formed in our position in Christ? Yes, but it has to enter into the experience. And there we grow up in grace in 2 Peter 3 and verse 18. But here in Galatians 5, and verse 16, and here's another part when we're wretched, this is what can happen when Christians are functioning in the flesh and functioning towards each other. Galatians 5, verse 15, it says, but if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. Verse 16, this I say then, walk in the spirit, submission of the will, and and then what? And you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit lusts against against the flesh, so that these are contrary one to another, so that you cannot even do the things that you would even desire to do. What a dilemma. (laughs) What a dilemma. And we all have to be brought to the place like God brought Job, and like he has to bring us right to this point of self-helplessness and self-hope each step. If it's not Christ, this is the place that he brings us to. Not that he's against us, but that he's for us. We know that based upon Romans chapter 8 and those 39 verses. Many believe that that's the gospel within the gospel in Romans the 8th chapter in those 39 verses. But so, here it is, the reasoning of the self-life, the flesh, without the experience, a proper reality in the proper image of the believer whose will isn't submitted, it's a wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? The answer comes in Romans 7 and verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, okay, not submitted, I myself, so then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, with the will submitted, I should say, but with the flesh, the law of sin. What is the law of sin? It's death. Then he said, and then brings it right into, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ. There is no wretchedness. (laughs) There's no bad thinking. There's no morbid depression in Christ experientially. None. There's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Why? For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from what? 
the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death. Okay, so what we see here, again, as we said in Job, and in, in Job, what do we see then? We get to the end. When we get to the end here of chapter 7, what it describes is another whole sort of groaning. Why it was the individual, why do we sometimes groan? There's two reasons why we groan. Groaning because of what? self-consciousness, not thinking properly about who we are in Christ. So we groan. And then also we know, and we can read it, and, and I'll read it in Romans 8, and we'll see the other reason why we groan. And in that sense, it is a proper groaning. And here it is in Romans 8 and verse 23. Here's the positive groaning and the right groaning. And not only though, because the whole creation is groaning, <laughs> waiting, waiting for the manifestation of Christ, ruling and reigning over us, where it will bring even everything on the earth during the millennial reign in its proper place. And this is what it says. And not only they, not only they, all the creation, but ourselves also, who we are in Christ, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. And that's who we are in Christ. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves. Why? Why do we groan sometimes? Because we're waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. To get away from all those lust patterns and sin. Did you ever get sick of sin? Did you ever get sick of it? and all of its negative things, and all of it, the death that it brings in. And, and uh, we groan. We groan. Again, this is what it says. When we groan, here's the, here's the positive groaning. And, and what we see at times is how we can confuse the two and make them one. And God wants to teach us, and through the Word, to separate those in Hebrews 4.12, so that we can walk with the sword of the Spirit and do proper battle. We're not always battling with the flesh and the lies, but we're going forward in the battle simply because in Ephesians 6.16, we have the shield of faith. All those truths, positional truths about who we are, and when we hold it, that means we're submitting to it, and it's our experience. The shield there quenches all the fiery reasonings that the enemy wants to get the believer to function in the flesh and become wretched, they think, in God's eyes and in their own eyes. We need to hold that shield up. And no one can do that but the individual with their will submitted to Christ. Ephesians 6.16. And then they take, and it's called the sword of the Spirit. The reason it's called the sword of the Spirit in 6.17 of Ephesians is because it's the Holy Spirit who, who's the theologian and the scholar He'll make real the written word and what, what has been declared to us in opposition to become an experiential reality so that we function in a proper image. And when we do with a proper image, like he told Moses in the midst of their trial, God led them to the Red Sea of impossibility. They looked to the left, mountain range. Looked to the right, a mountain range. And the fierce arm, fiercest army of the day, the Egyptian army, hot on their trails. They put, they're put in a place where there's no self-help and there's no self-hope, not in themselves or in anyone else. And that's when 
God said to Moses, Moses, Exodus 14, 13, stand still. Emotionally, mentally, thought life. Be still in Psalm 46 and verse 10 and know that I'm God. Stand still in Exodus 14, 13 and you will see the deliverance of the Lord. You know, these deliverances, they come for us. But you know what? Faith experiences the deliverance Faithful trust experiences the deliverance even before it comes by sight. And that's what he's teaching us in Romans 1.17, from faith to faith. Then he told them in Exodus 14.14, 14, the battle is the Lord. What's the battle for us? It's the mind of the individual. That has a lot to do with those five parts of the soul, the mind, the emotions, the will, self-consciousness, and the conscience. And that's why they, we need to submit our will. We saw that in Romans 7, 18 and, and 23. But what we, see, what we see here, again, is why groaning in, in this sense, what are we groaning for and, and, and anticipating? What we see here in verse, uh, Philippians 3 and verse 20 is, is our, where it says conversation, it's citizenship, it's our lifestyle. Our whole lifestyle has to do with our heavenly position. It's in heaven. From where we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, our view is to be vertical, not horizontal. There's a lot of prophecy being fulfilled on the earth. We're to know it, but our view is to be vertical. Remember how we said that the window in the ark, which was the type of Christ, in, in the day of judgment, the day of the, fled, of the flood, there was one window, it was on the top, their view was to look up. This is what it's teaching us here. Our lifestyle, everything about us, our whole thought life, and if you know our thought life, remember in Colossians 3 verse 2, set your mind, not your affections or emotions, it says for, it's your mind. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. When we get in the flesh, experientially, instantly, it's all about what's going on in the earth. You'll see that in Matthew, even the sixth chapter, in those 34 verses, and you can see how it starts with the submission of the will in prayer, and if not, how it can get into all the details of life become our whole reasoning, and reasons why we can't trust and why we can't go forward. So he told Moses in Exodus 14, 14, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And he told Moses as a leader, and he tells us as leaders, go forward. Go forward. No such thing as neutrality. There's no neutral. We're going forward or we're going back. Two reasonings of the groanings. Going back, we groan because we go right back to the flesh and, and all this lying reasoning that comes from the enemy of our soul who will use all of those thoughts of the flesh to oppose us. Because how can we, how can God, how can we think that God's opposing us when in Romans 8 and verse 31, he's already for us. He's already given us the son and we've received him. But here in Philippians 3, again in verse 20, our whole lifestyle's in heaven. From where we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will change our vile body. That's again Romans 8 verse 20. We groan because we want to be clothed with this whole other tabernacle, no more sin nature, when we're with him in heaven. By the way, that doesn't happen until we get into heaven. Some will teach 
very erroneously, that we no longer have a fleshly nature within us. But what does Romans 8 verse 9 say? The flesh is in us, but we're not of it. Okay? The flesh is in us, but we're not of it. Some will teach the falseness of the, the, what they call one naturism or the exchange life. They don't understand the exchange life in its proper way based upon Romans the 7th chapter and the 8th chapter. But again, who will change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the work and working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. And boy, when he has our will submitted to him, we see he's in control of everything. But our view has to be vertical. And that's what it's saying. Then also we can see in, in the preponderance of the scriptures that Romans 8 and verse 23, and we see it again in Philippians 3 and verse 20 and 21, we can see the teaching of what Christ was teaching the church that happened to be in seven different locations, but was one church as the original brings out. But we see in Revelations 3 and verse 5, it says, he that overcomes, how do we overcome? By submitting and receiving Christ as our Savior who has overcome everything. That's what an overcomer is. He that overcomes, right? He that overcomes, what? The same will be clothed in white raiment. That's our new, brand new, glorified bodies. That's what Romans 8 verse 18 is bringing out clearly. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time, sometimes we groan because of that in a right way. I reckon that the sufferings and the groanings of this present time are not even worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us, on us, and all around us. And that's our glorified body in an amazing place as we face him face to face, finally, in 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 12, and brought out beautifully in Revelations 2 and verse 17. But sometimes what we do if we don't have precise teaching or we don't submit our will to what we know to be true and refuse to do it in James 4 and verse 17, we confuse the two. Why? Because it's sin in that sense. It's been dealt with, but does it seek to come through our flesh again. Why do we go back? Why do we go back? And where will we go back and sin again? Now they're paid for, without a doubt, but God will lovingly chastise us and correct us. But why do we go back in them? Because we go back to the reasonings of the flesh. That's why people quit. That's why Christians quit. That's why they need change constantly. Constant change. Because they're not satisfied with where they are, and in, in, inwardly I'm talking about, inwardly they're not satisfied with where God has placed them in Christ. So there's sin still dwelling in our flesh. It's, again, some the one nature's crowd, the exchange life crowd sa says that you don't have it anymore. It's just the lies of the atmosphere coming against you. And then if you quote enough scriptures, you can make it go away. I don't see that anywhere in the Bible. It's taught so frequently, and it's caused a lot of pain, needless pain and suffering to those that are Christ. But the fact is, we will do that. We will confuse the two. We will confuse them, and we will enter them into the flesh. 
Because when we're not experientially established in grace, and that's why it says in Hebrews 13 and verse 9, verse 9 it is good. And we'll read that again. This is Hebrews 13, verse 9. It happens to be in a place where these Christians who were Jews, they were Hebrews, they now receive Christ. They're part of the body of Christ, and now they go back. The enemy comes in, and he uses the Judaizers, of course, like he did in John the Apostle's day. He dealt with Serinthius. Church history brings it out very beautifully. They had public baths in those days. And John, the beloved apostle, he would send his disciples into these public baths to make sure that Serinthius wasn't there. <laughs> he didn't even want to be around him. Didn't even want to be around him. So it's a good thing. And so that's what he was teaching. The whole teaching of Hebrews unlocks the 6th chapter and the 10th chapter that seem to be so contradictory when we realize that these believers, they were born again, they were positioned in Christ, but experientially they were going back to the flesh, to the law, and to works. To try to perform something they could in no way perform. Because Christ obviously in John 19 and verse 30 had finished the work. So we see, and we see in Hebrews 13, in verse 9, it says this. Well, look at verse 8, Hebrews 13, 8. Jesus Christ the same yesterday in all your yesterdays, in all your todays, in all your eternal future. That's your position. Be not carried away. Every wind of doctrine in Ephesians 4 and verse 14. Be not carried away with many and strange doctrines, teachings, for it is a good thing. It is good that the heart, the mind, the emotions, the will, self-consciousness, and the conscious be established foundationally in Christ with grace, not with meats, works again, which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. So as we wrap this up uh, this morning, this is God through the discernment of the word, through Hebrews 4 verse 12, separating the soul from the spirit, groaning, in the soul, groaning righteously in the spirit, we see here a beautiful thing that we truly are positionally established in grace, but if we don't experience it, we don't discern the difference. We don't have, when you don't have, a, and I don't have, a proper sense of grace, what are we functioning in? He's teaching us. It's the flesh. Instantly we work. And then we give up and just let sin have its way, because what's the sense? Well, the sense is no discernment and a complete lack of grace. Listen, we're always to go forward. We're always to go forward. Listen, there's no neutrality. If I don't trust him going forward, instantly my mind's going back. It's going to go back. It's going to start forming plans and ways out just in case I don't trust God. <laughs> we don't discern the difference between them. Now, this whole chapter in Romans 7, and we're going to close the whole chapter in Romans 7, here, the whole chapter is full of what people call experience. Right? Experience. But it is not the experience of a proper Christian experience. Meaning, being in Christ positionally and with the will submitted with his thoughts, casting down those 
false lying reasonings that come from the atmosphere. Upsama is the high things where the demons function and project all these imaginations against trusting God, all these reasonings, and tries to get us to function in the flesh so he can condemn us constantly <laughs> and then make it that it's God and it's not, of course. And so it's not the proper Christian experience, the proper image, but of the thoughts of the mind within and about, about what? Self. That's Job, the 29th chapter. This is, this is Romans, the 7th chapter. How many times you look at it, the I, me, myself, in many of my different Bibles that I have, I've circled the I, me, myself in, in Job 29, and I did it in Romans, the 7th chapter. But that's what is the place of Romans 7, that he constantly, in his love and mercy and unconditional grace and love and mercy, he brings us to. What is the place? It's self-help and self-hope. And when I don't trust God, okay, I will look to others immediately. I will. And then I'll be disappointed. Then when I, they don't come through, I'll look within myself and try and find something. And what do I find there in the flesh? No good thing. In Romans 7, 18, I get very discouraged. But when I look to Christ in submission of my will, trusting by, by faith, not by sight. And faith, faith is the greatest certainty of the substance of reality that we have. That's Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the substantiation. It's the title deed. It's the proof of the things hoped for that we are trusting God implicitly for. So that whole chapter. So you see the two reasons why? And we're just kind of touching it this morning. Two reasons why we groan. We groan in the flesh. Oh, we groan waiting for these bodies. We groan. And then even that groaning in 2 Timothy 2 verse 12 is suffering with him. Remember Jesus groaned in identification in John 11 and verse 33 at, at the gravesite of Lazarus. And he wasn't groaning because Lazarus had entered into the intermediate state of death. It was still an intermediate state, by the way. He wasn't groaning about that. He was groaning in identification with all of those and complete identification of what sin would do in bringing death. That's what he was doing there, in complete identification. And then he wept in 1135. Uh, he, he wept in John 1135. Uh, Jeremiah was the weeping prophet in, in, prophet in Jeremiah 9, verse 1. Paul wept. In the space of three years, it says day and night in Acts 20, 19 and 31. In identification, there was groaning. If we suffer, groan with him. Suffer with him, we'll reign with him. But if we deny him, wrong groaning, do we experience proper groaning? He'll deny us. What, does God ever deny who we are in Christ? What does he deny? The flesh, because it's not who we are. It's not who you are. It's not who I am. And so in the midst of what God is bringing and prophecy on the earth, that's horizontal. Listen, that's going to come to an end. Our view is to be vertical. It's kind of interesting. Kind of, it's very, very interesting that God, the cross, dealt with the horizontal and the vertical. And that's what Christ did. 
He dealt with it all for us. And we're to trust him implicitly in these days, especially in these days where prophecy is literally before our eyes being fulfilled. And we can suffer and groan with those that are suffering and groaning. But righteously, what a better way to do it than to be so overwhelmed with occupation of the self-life. What a privilege we have to be able to groan with him and reign with him. So Father, we thank you and praise you for these truths. Thank you so much for who you are, what you've accomplished, what you've done in each of us as individuals. And thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.